Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men may be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, and love, and patience. The older women likewise, that they may be reverent in behavior, not slanders, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time again this evening in your word. We thank you, Lord, that you love us that you're for us, that you've placed your spirit within us, that you've saved us by grace. Thank you for this midweek oasis, Lord, just to open your word. I pray that it would refresh us, Lord, that you would strengthen us through your word, our faith. We leave here with more joy and more peace, and it would just overflow into Thursday and through the rest of this week, and we just pray that we'd continue to grow as we walk in you, and may your word be the source of, Lord, that knowledge and truth, and growth of faith in our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now in the context of verses 9 through 16, if you go back to uh, what we looked at in verses 9 through 16, um, particularly verses 10 through, 10 through 16, but uh, 9 was kind of a bridge verse, uh, there was a lot of bad influences. And we're kind of reviewing, kind of going back to last Wednesday for just a second. But remember, there was a lot of bad influences and bad examples that had crept into the church in Crete. Uh, more than just bad habits or unhelpful relationships, there was rampant false teaching. You know, it's one thing to have kind of some not-so-productive relationships, but it was worse than that. There was out-and-out false, poisonous teaching. Now, it was primarily legalism. You'd say, well, how can legalism be that bad? Yeah, legalism can lead to completely false Doctrine, false teaching, things that don't come from God, but they're the traditions of men. And all of this was all of this was elevating men rather than elevating Christ. And these men were actually, we, Paul tells us a little bit about them. They were, they were motivated by greed, dishonest gain, pride. These were the things that motivated them. So their legalism false as it may be, was also a way for them to serve the own, their own lust of the flesh. Now, most of this was happening in smaller gatherings, house churches, 10 people, 15 people, 5 people, 8 people, that kind of smaller gatherings. In other words, in close quarters, one to few type gatherings, those that had ascended to places of influence were bad examples of the grace and purity of God. They needed not only to be rebuked and removed as needed, but then replaced with good examples, right? Now, you, you don't want your kids just to have no examples. So you definitely don't want them in life to have bad examples. There's enough of that out there. You don't have to look hard to get bad examples. But you want them to have good examples, starting with uh, you and I as parents or grandparents or whatever you may be in their lives. And even as we saw in Nehemiah chapter 11, where the leaders willingly, and they willingly submitted and sacrificed their own preferences, remember in Nehemiah this past Sunday, willingly choosing to live in Jerusalem. The right kind of example always needs to start at the top. But worthy examples are needed everywhere in the family of God. Wouldn't you agree? I mean... We've got people over there serving the children's ministry right now. They need worthy examples. 
downstairs with our teens, all throughout the body of Christ. Now, in a family, wouldn't you agree that a mature, older sibling is valuable? Those of you that have multiple kids, the older they get, it's nice to have someone you can rely on. Hey, you can, you can go pick up the others and you can safely trust them. There's some level of responsibility you can give to them. It's an asset to the family. And certainly in, the, in older days, you know, when families had big families, 11, 12 kids, uh, the olders all, all were almost like surrogates of the parents at some point because you wanted role models that could have influence in a good way in even a peer group. In business, integrity, and dependability, and executive leadership is very important. Wouldn't you agree? You want Whoever you work for, do you want your executives to have integrity? When they say, These, this is the bonus structure, that you can believe it, or this is what we're going to do, that there's some integrity behind the statements that they make. Now, it's often more directly valuable, though, and I'm talking about a business context for, here a, sec, uh, for a second, and a frontline manager or a senior-level le- senior peer that can show the ropes, right? If you can say, hey, there's somebody I can actually talk to that has that kind of integrity that's important. And so Paul is saying here in these first few verses, if I can use a sports analogy, you need more than a great example and a strong character as a head coach. The assistants, the veteran players need to mirror the same high character and the same commitment to the entire team to be as healthy, as effective, and as cohesive as possible, right? Any kind of team that has a a great coach, but there should be leadership at each rung throughout the team or the organization. Later this year, um, here at Calvary Chapel Richmond, we're going to be going through the same spiritual leadership book with all of our men in in our bottom row Thursday nights as we're going through together right now among our leadership. I want all of our men to go through it, regardless of whether they're serving in leadership capacity here or not. God wants to raise an entire group of leaders all throughout our men. Whatever age they may be, they might still be just barely going into college, doesn't matter. But that all of us are submissive followers to Christ because you can't be a good leader until you're a good follower. To help build up those at every age and maturity within the body of Christ. In our own specific, uh, specific case, again, we're going to be doing that here. But that needed to take place in Crete as well. And as we turn our attention back to verse 1, but as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Paul is laying out the qualities of a sound and a healthy church family. What the elders should be praying over and discipling and encouraging the body in are in these characteristics that we see in these first three verses. Because the fact is, uh, the more sound and the more mature the body is, many things, if the body grows and mature, now think about this. It's the same true. Um, when you're really healthy, how often do you have to go to the doctor? How many of you enjoy going to the doctor? It's one of your favorite things. It's just like, I cannot wait to go every day to the doctor. No. You know if you take care of yourself, you don't have to go as often. Now, at a certain point, you might have something chronic or age. You know, th- those th- I'm talking about 
when you add, you know, there's certain periods of life where, for the most part, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. That mindset, if you will, right? But the fact is, the more sound and mature the body is, and I'm speaking of the body of the church body now, many things will never have have to be handled in crisis mode. Isn't that great? A lot of crisis could be avoided. A lot of drama could be avoided. A lot of things uh, that cause problems because members within the body will be regularly and consistently built up in the faith and courage. They'll hold each other in a Christian manner accountable. The most effective organizations don't need micromanaging leaders. Does any of you like having micromanaging leaders over you? It watches your every, over every move you make. After a while, you do worse work like that, right? Starts to kind of mess with people's minds. We don't need micromanagement. No, peer accountability and peer, peer encouragement is always healthy in a family, in an organization, certainly in the church. And so uh, this is what Paul is saying. He's saying when the leadership is important, we've got to get that in place, but it should flow throughout the church body. There should be the same kind of health and pouring into one another throughout the body. And here we're looking at examples tonight, if you're taking notes, the importance of examples. And so the first thing I want to take a look at related to verse 1 here, I've titled Ministry Mandate. But as for you, verse 1, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. The right direction does start at the top. It does. And if you look at the way top of this body of Christ, it's our chief shepherd, Jesus, right? Would you say Jesus set the right example? Of course. We have the right leadership at the top. We have Jesus. He's at the top of the church. He is the head, the Bible calls him. We're the body. He's the head of the church. Jesus has done his part. As I mentioned Sunday, he's the most surrendered person to ever walk the earth, the most submissive person to ever walk the earth. So it makes sense that all leaders should be surrendered and submissive following in the footsteps of Jesus. But he also, after he secured our salvation with his own sacrifice, he left us with precise instructions for reaching this world with the gospel and strengthening and ministering inside the church. Would you agree with that? He left us with precise instructions. And he left those instructions via a couple of means. One, the Old Testament that was already there when he arrived for his earthly ministry. Because he quoted, where did he quote all throughout his ministry? From the Old Testament. It hadn't gone away. It's still important today. It still tells us, you know, way back, Moses uh, learning how to delegate and have leadership. That was all given long before Jesus entered there in Bethlehem. We have his own words and his own teachings given in his earthly ministry, and those are recorded in the four Gospels. And then we have the epistles written by the apostles and other disciples that was dictated by the Holy Spirit. So those are the teachings, the writings, all the things that we need for ministry leadership in the church. In other words, a detailed playbook of how to lead, how to live, how to worship, how to pray, 
how to, how to evangelize, how to minister, how to love, how to correct, how to forgive, how to resolve things. As Paul said to Timothy, everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. Having the exactly needed instructions are really helpful, aren't they? Aren't you glad when you really have the instructions you need? Ever refer back to a recipe that you really weren't sure if you remembered all the steps to see if there was one part that maybe you forgot and then you're glad that you checked? Instructions save us time, frustration, unnecessary failure. My wife got me this new watch on Friday. This one right here. Awesome, isn't it? She got me this new watch. has three instrument knobs for settings, adjusting the, ta uh, the time, the date, other features. And now, I don't know about some of you men, I often just play around with things to figure them out. Is that just me? I sometimes just play around. I'll figure it out. But I only had a little bit of time before we had to be somewhere. So I said, I'm going to open the instruction little book that was in there and see if my assumptions, I had some assumptions about the knobs. They were right on two, but I was dead wrong on one of the knobs. And had I not looked at the instructions, uh, I would have spent a lot more time. Instead, I set the whole thing up in about two minutes. Because I read the instructions, ah, oh, knob three is not what I would expect. That's a counterintuitive thing I am seeing here, right? And so it's important that we read the instructions. And Jesus has given us instructions to save us unnecessary meandering and issues and wasting time. God doesn't want us playing around with what we think will work in his church. And he doesn't want us trying, working it out till we figure it out. No. He wants us to pick up the manual right here. He wants us to pick up the manual and go through it, read it, and follow it. It's pretty simple, isn't it? That's what he wants us to do. Like the recipe or your car manual in your glove compartment, at times you refer back to it, don't you? I've referred back to the car manual a number of times where I'm, I'm pretty sure I know what this is. Under the, I'm not like some of these guys that know everything under the hood. I'm pretty sure, but I need to double check that. And it's good to have that manual. And so pastors and elders... Verse 1 here, that you speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. We have a clear mandate that Paul is conveying. Priority 1, teach and preach. Teach and preach the doctrines found in the Word of God. When you see the word, the two words there, sound doctrine, you know what it means in the Greek? When you see sound doctrine, what it means in the Greek is healthy instruction. Sound doctrine means healthy instruction. Going back to you know, the, the whole medical thing, the reason your doctor gives you healthy instructions against so you don't have to see him as often. Healthy instruction. Here's what I want you to do. You do this, you and I don't have to meet as much. The mindset is teaching that encourages right thinking and right living. It's pointless to have right teaching if it doesn't translate into right living. Wouldn't you agree? For many of us, before we were saved, we knew a lot of Scripture, 
but didn't follow that scripture. So it's not profitable to know it. Jesus said, I don't want you to be hearers of the word, but what? Doers of the word. Jesus met lots of people that heard him, but tons of people did not obey him. And so when we teach, the mindset is Paul's like, when you teach and preach, exhortation, teaching is instruction, preaching is exhortation, it's that there would be right thinking, but it would translate into right living. Now you'll notice in verse 1, no time frame is given. He doesn't say, but it's for you to speak the things which are sound doctrine one month out of the year. Do it in the early stages of the church plant. No time frame given. Why? Well, we know, as he told Timothy in another pastoral epistle, he told Timothy to preach in season and out of season. Guess when that is? All seasons. In season and out of season. What does that really mean to us? When you want to and when you don't want to. When you feel like it, when you don't feel like it. When you have a headache and when you don't have a headache. When you don't feel like, you know, just the day's not going great, still teach the word. Now, that's, that's given to pastors, but now all of us as believers, we read the word when we feel like it, when we don't feel like it. When we're having a good day, when we're not having a good day. No matter what, we keep going back to the word. So he's saying, this is important. Just keep doing it. Well, what, they've already heard these verses before. doesn't matter. Trust me, they've forgotten some. I've read some verses a million times, and I will read them like I've never read them before. Isn't that just me? You're like, why did I forget that? That's such an important truth. Why, why have I forgotten it? But you wouldn't know unless you keep going back to the same well. And this is a well that never, Jesus called it, you know, you, this well you drink of, it's just like living water that just never stops quenching thirst. Whether people, now for pastors and teachers, we're to teach the word whether people want the word or not. Remember the Bible says the word of the Lord was rare in those days. One time it says in the Old Testament, rare in those days because people, oh, they don't really want it, so let's teach them something else. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. It doesn't matter if they want the word or not. You teach the word. You have to teach it all by yourself. But uh, when we're on mountaintops or we're in valleys, when the church is rejoicing, when the church is mourning, and we've seen both of those things here at times, when there's growth, when there's subtraction, when there's holding patterns, when there's going in a circle like the children of Israel in the desert, keep speaking, keep preaching the truth, keep, uh, keep teaching the word, but as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Keep giving healthy instruction. Now, we'll never run out because there's a lot of books, you know, we have 66 books of the Bible. It takes a long time to go through one of them, doesn't it? So in a lifetime, you just keep going through this, and by the time you get through it all, you'll have forgotten plenty to go back and redo the whole thing over again. The ministry mandate. That's what verse 1 is telling us. We have a mandate to not deviate from the centrality of the word, and that's central to Calvary Chapel's you know, plural, but it's central to here is the word, and not just here, but also in the children's ministry, also in the uh, middle and high school, whatever the uh, group may be, that the word would be at the center. Now he moves on, verse 2, away from the pastoral elder leadership, and so uh, we look at verse 2, that the older men may be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, and love and patience. I'm reading from the New King James. You may have some other words 
depending on your translation. Now, chapter 1 and chapter 2, and chapter 2, verse 1, I mean, but all of chapter 1 and, and then the first chapter, we, uh, first verse we just looked at, they lead off with the importance and the quality of character that are to be modeled by pastors and elders. Again, specifically chapter 1 and then verse 1. And again, the responsibility and accountability does start at the top. Why do, we, why do we know that? To whom much is given, much is required. So it makes sense that Paul, when outlining the health of the body of the, uh, the body of the church, starts with those now. He moves from pastors and elders to those who are older in age. I'm not going to point to any of you that might qualify for this. You'll have to determine for yourself if you qualify for older in age. You know, we have means in this country if you can qualify for Social Security. You know, there's different things. I mean, I turned 50 on Friday, and I thought I, my wife was kidding when she came and brought me an AARP thing in the mail, but it really was from AARP. <laughs> I said, I don't look like that. I still wear skater shoes and stuff, so there's no way this really applies to me. You know, so uh, <laughs> I did. I, got, and I, I literally got an AARP thing. Like two days after I turned 50, I'm like, is there good discounts in this? Because if there is, I might take advantage of this. Do I get better deals? I don't know. But nonetheless, Paul, uh, the word elder, now we, we, we're talking about the spiritual elders, church elders back in chapter 1. The word elder is a different word used, uh, is the word here, older. Elder and older. They're not the same Greek words. The word elder, it does mean aged and mature, but uh, that emphasis is for leadership. The emphasis for uh, elders and pastors, it's spiritual age, spiritual maturity, spiritual wisdom. So the elder, it does mean older or, uh, or uh, aged or mature, but it, it's speaking of more in the spiritual realm. Now here in verse 2, and it's not speaking of church leadership. He uses a different Greek word, older, here. Uh, it's referring to numerical age. But Paul, nonetheless, he begins with older men. Those with more experience, more life lessons, more things that they uh, have come through, more years of their life. Uh, now, Titus, in the, Greek, in, the, in the culture there in Crete, uh, if he wasn't respectful and diplomatic in working with the older men, that could cause a problem as well. So Paul admonishes Timothy, too, to be very, very respectful dealing with those that are older than yourself. But uh, here in verse 2, these men, they don't have titles. It's not speaking of titles, speaking of age, older in age. No titles are needed, and yet older men can be great examples and mentors within the church body. Do you agree with that? They can be great, can be. God designed that they would be, but they can be great role models within the church. Their age alone is a platform. Just, just having God, God puts a level of respect on those with age, and a lot of cultures around the world do as well. Sometimes the American culture doesn't really put the right level of respect on it as it should compared to other cultures in the world, and certainly what we see. The scriptures, but the age alone is a platform to be used in guiding others. It could be a stumbling block too if it's not used in the right way. 
That's why I love the heart and mindset of, you know, we, the, the men that started senior class here to be godly examples. I, I love the, the desire behind putting that group together. And Paul is saying to the older men in the church, you've been given years by God's grace. You've been given X number of years already by God's grace. You've come through some things. Now use your life as an example to others, especially those that are younger. What's listed here is primarily how you live mentoring by example. He's not speaking immediately, although he does mention teaching at the end of verse 3. He's not speaking immediately of teaching, but mentoring by example what people would observe. Now, if you're hearing uh, the, the older ladies are mentioned in verse 3, but older ladies listen closely to everything in verse 2, because according to verse 3, all of these apply to you as well. So what is going to be mentioned to the older men also applies to the older ladies in verse 3. But men, by the way, uh, Paul referred to himself as older when he was above the age of 60. That Just as a side note, he, prior to that he didn't refer to them that way, but after the age of 60, he referred to himself uh, for what it's worth, but um, aside from the responsibility and potential influence of those who have lived longer, uh, the listing and encouragement, also, the listing and encouragement of things here in verse two, also tells us that Christian character, and I think we'd all agree with this, Christian character does not automatically come with age. Christian character does not automatically come with age. But we must be willingly surrendered, and then the sanctification process does bring those things. So someone younger can be more mature spiritually because they're more yielded. And I've seen, you know, I've seen young people that get saved and they're so on fire for the Lord, they become 10 years more mature in a matter of, seems like a year. You guys all know Javon down there. I mean, that, the transformation of that young man. Incredible. Well, let's look at, look at the list for a second. Older men, sober. What does sober mean? Uh, the real emphasis here is vigilant. Vigilant. Uh, it, it can have a secondary meaning of not controlled by alcohol and wine, but the real focus here is vigilant. And, and it would make sense, because Paul mentions wine in chapter 3, that, the, that he is you know, throwing some towards that, and they would pick up on that. But the, the main emphasis here is vigilant. Uh, then he says reverent. Again, some of your um, uh, translations may something different. Some of your translations might say dignified, which is really what it means, honorable. It means of honest character, that older men would be of an honest character. Dignified, you think of someone who has dignity, They'd be an honest person. Temperate means sensible. <laughs> you certainly want sensible people in your life, right? Sensible. Beyond that, it means stability of mind. How about this? It means curbing one's impulses. You know, younger men are watching to see how older men in Christ handle stress, how they handle setbacks how they handle temptation, curbing one's appetite. All of these things are of the mindset of 
temperate, stability of mind there. He says sound in faith. What does that mean? It means healthy and strong trust and belief in God and divine truth. So when you, when, if you were to say that somebody has sound faith, they're sound in the faith. They have a healthy and strong trust and belief in God and divine truth. They really believe the scriptures. They really stand on the word of God. They're sound in faith. He goes on, love. Remember, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, if we have not love, everything else is, doesn't profit us anything, right? You don't want someone who has a lot of integrity, but they're not loving at all. People will resist a person that does all the right, says all the right things, but is not loving. They'll eventually be like this. How many of you want to be in a marriage? I have the most awesome husband. He's everything except for loving. <laughs> Think about it. doesn't make any sense, right? I love Jesus. He's everything except for loving. No. Love is the essence of who Christ is, right? So the older men, he's saying that they would grow in love, that they would, uh, this, this is the word agape. Many of you are familiar with the word agape. It means brotherly love, affection, goodwill, charitable, benevolent. You can't be a grouchy old man, right? Now, that, that is true, but the idea here is really that uh, beyond that, that you love like a brother. Someone who encourages, someone who comes alongside, maybe metaphorically or even literally puts an arm around, speaks goodwill into others, is compassionate, is kind, is giving. These are the characteristics of this word love. It's a very rich word here, very multifaceted word. Definitely not the kind of love that people misunderstand in this country a lot, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a sacrificial love. It's a coming alongside for the benefit of others, not for the benefit of self. And then lastly, he says patience. Now, we would probably think of patience as I can put up with, you know, people. But although that can apply, that's really not the main focus here. This, uh, some of your Bibles may say perseverance. Some of your translations might say perseverance instead of patience. It means steadfast, endurance, constant, like a rock. Someone who stays the course even in trials. This is the kind of patience we're talking about. The patience of the saints. You know what I'm talking about in Scripture? The patience of the saints that you stay the course. You get tossed all over the place, but you do not abandon ship. Um, you know, when you stay the course, sometimes people will see you, when you stay the course, they're going to see you fall and flounder sometimes, but really, that doesn't mean you fail. I love this quote from George Bernard Shaw. And a matter of fact, if you're going to lead in anything, people are going to watch you like a hawk. You'll, you'll have a spotlight on your life, no matter who you are, whether you're uh, older in age and people are looking up to you or in leadership at some time. George Bernard Shaw said, a man learns to skate by staggering about making a fool of himself. Indeed, he progresses in all things by making a fool of himself. The main thing is he stays on the rink, right? Yeah, you might fall a few times. You might fall a bunch of times. But you're not diving 
there's a difference between diving into sin and falling down. Would you agree? Diving into sin is saying, I'm out of here. Falling down is a man, righteous man may fall seven times, yet he gets back up. And so the younger men are looking and say, I've seen that even when you failed a few times, you've stayed the course. They weren't catastrophic failures. They were like, man, I probably shouldn't have said that. And then they even hear when you come back and apologize and say, I probably shouldn't have said it that way. Would you forgive me? It's the patience of the saints. That's where love and patience actually work together, by the way. And all of these characteristics work together. They're, they're all complementary of the other. Now, so as I already mentioned, uh, Paul moves uh, in verse 3, he moves from the older men to the complementary peer group, age and influence-wise, of the older women. There's a peer group of the opposite sex. And so let's look at verse 3. It'll be the last one we'll look at tonight. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanders, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. The first word he says to the older women is likewise. Literally, it means in the same manner. In the same manner. So everything in verse 2 also applies to the ladies. Paul says, hey, you want godly women that all, are all these same things. You want them to be loving. You want them to be patient to the saints. You want them to be reverent in each of these, uh, each of these characteristics. Paul mentions reverent. Uh, the prior list applies, but he mentions reverent a second time. But if you're reading from the New King James, like I am, it, it says the same word, but it's not the same word. Some of your Bibles may use the word holiness. Depending on your translation, it might say holiness. So it's not the exact same word as reverence in verse 2. And so what the word means that he says here to the ladies, it means befitting actions sacred to God. Befitting actions sacred to God. You see, there's a purity and there's a consecration that Paul says God wants your words and your actions to convey. A purity and a consecration that they would be God-honoring type, the way you carry yourself and the way you speak. That it would, that it would speak to holiness. Next thing he says... Not slanders. Hmm. Not slanders. What does that mean? Uh, malicious gossips. That's what it means. To malign, to distribute a false report. How about this one? To pick someone apart. To nitpick. Boy, Americans are good at this. This is what Twitter is all about these days. Pick everybody apart. Even worse than Facebook. I mean, social media has its strata of usage. The snarkier you are, Twitter is for you. Because I have a Twitter account and I use it. I try not to use it snarky. I try to use it in a good way. But, but uh, to pick people apart, malicious gossip, to malign, becomes a sport for some people. And Paul's saying, hey, uh, unsaved women might sit around in Crete and just rail on everybody. What about her? Yeah, you know about her. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. Paul said, this can't be in the church. Can't be among the godly women. Next he says, uh, not given to much wine. Now, 
it literally means in, not enslaved to wine. Literally means not enslaved to wine. Now, wine in and of itself is not a sin. Jesus first miraculously turned water into wine. I, I don't believe it was grape juice, for those of you who ever heard that. I really believe it was wine. Wine in and of itself is not a sin. If you had a glass of wine with a steak, you are not sinning. You're not on your way to hell because, you know, you had a glass of wine with a steak or something like that. The Bible is clear that be, to be drunk is a sin. Be drunk with wine. That's a sin. That is sinning because you are now quenching the Holy Spirit. You can't be controlled by wine and the Spirit at the same time. Paul mentioned sober, as, as we looked at in verse 2, sober to the older men. And like I said, it has some allusion to the older men to drinking, but it was more specifically directed to vigilance in that word. But we can't be controlled by the Holy Spirit and by spirits, right? All the whole word came out of, right? <laughs> Middle Ages or whatever it did, spirits, because people you know, start being controlled by some liquid thing that's that they're drinking in. So even though wine itself is not a sin, we know that there's a clear prohibition from the Lord to not be drunk or not to be controlled by a substance. Can't be controlled by the spirit and wine at the same time. Now, the abuse of wine and drunkenness was common in the Roman Greco culture. They had big drinking parties. Peter writes about them. The abominable drinking parties, he calls them. And other alcohol I mean, had, was around, too. It wasn't just wine. And it was abused, much like today. You know, when it, when it talks about uh, revelry and stuff, it would be like, you know, you'd see in a bar a bunch of guys with a stein all stumbling around singing. That would be revelry, right? And you can see that down at Chaco Bottom later tonight, I'm sure. You can go down there, and you can see revelry happening and drunkenness and all that stuff. But... Here, he's speaking specifically to the women in Crete. And he's telling them not to be enslaved to wine, and specifically wine, because this was somewhat of an issue there in Crete, and it was a larger issue within the Roman culture. It was common for older women at that time to be very attached and even dependent on wine, and it appears that it was even more so in Crete than other parts. You know, there's parts of the world where, like in Russia, vodka is a big, big stranglehold on the population there, where it's not. In lots of other places, vodka is not a stranglehold for anybody, right? But it is there, big time. We have pastors in Russia that can tell you all about it and how difficult a stronghold it is to deal with uh, in that part of the world. Now, Paul makes it clear um, that even though women in the Greco-Roman era, they, they might have been dependent upon wine, he makes it clear this cannot be the case with godly women. They cannot be dependent and slaved to wine. As an aside, uh, wine consumption in the U.S. is making an ancient comeback. I, just feel like, I like to look at little trends sometimes and look things up. And one of the reasons is, uh, it is true that a glass of wine, it's an antidepressant. It's, it, it, it can suppress anxiety. It can suppress stress. It can help you unwind. And all that's true. So 
you know, in moderation, uh, there may be some benefit there. I'm not saying, I'm not endorsing it. I'm simply saying that scientifically fact-based, yes, it would, it can lower those symptoms. There's no question about it. But the Bible also warns about it too. Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. So, you, you, you know, it's one of those things you want to be careful with. I think a lot of Christians are not being so careful with these days. I think they just kind of have a lot more license than, than I believe. You know, Paul was saying, hey, be, be, be very careful with this. By the way, the enemy studies humanity, doesn't he? Did you know Satan studies people like eight million times better than Madison Avenue does? I mean, he knows... He knows people, so he doesn't need big data. He already's crunched the numbers. He knows what works in different parts of the world. He knows what works on men, what works on women. Men are much more predisposed in this country to beer. They are. They're more predisposed to beer. They're more predisposed to pornography than women are. Not, but there's changes in both those categories. Uh, but women, even in this country, uh, wine is getting more and more popular with women, and when you think about anxiety and stress and you think about all those things, it makes you can kind of understand why. Uh, it's easier to have a diversion, a little chillax, chillax with you know, those kind of things. But I think Satan gives a lot of things that, he, that people think are going to calm them. Hey, you know what you need? You just need hours on your phone. You just need hours uh, watching TV and binge watcher, this, that, and the other, and it's a lot easier to just play on your iPad than pray, isn't it? Everything by prayer and supplication. Right? Casting all your cares upon him. Uh, it, this is God says, I, these are the things that I'm going to use to deliver you, and we lean on these other things. They become a crutch. It's not not wise to be careful with these things. So he says, these uh, ladies, and I'm speaking to everyone here, but again, uh, even the Bible always pinpoints some things that we can kind of see, you know, if it was, so I, I wondered if it was kind of an issue then, I wonder if there's even some relative data now. And so I kind of looked up a few things. According to winebusiness.com, since 2000, since the year 2000, high-frequency wine drinkers in our country uh, has more than doubled from 7.6%. Uh, to now 13% in 2015. So high-frequency um, uh, high wine drinkers have doubled since the year 2000 in the United States. This is all male and female. In 2000-2005, occasional wine drinkers surged from 18% to 26%. So we see a rise uh, there. Uh, this, again, same, uh, same article. Same article, uh, it said, wine is winning with women. Women account for 57% of wine volume in the U.S., 57%. Uh, that's from Nielsen Spectra, 2015. Uh, a November 11th article uh, in Decanter Magazine, their online edition, said wine consumption in India is rising at a stupendous rate, particularly among women, the report says. Wine consumption among women throughout India has increased by 28 7% in the last five years compared to only 17.3% demand from males, especially in metropolitan areas. Now, the men might be hugely addicted to other things. It could be you know, beer and things like that. I'm simply saying that uh, Paul noticed something in that time period, and he addressed it very specifically. He said, hey, this is something 
don't let it creep into the church. It's the norm in Crete. I don't want it to be the norm in the body of Christ. And so it's, you know, the Bible just is not just always right on what's sin and what's not sin. Again, wine in itself isn't sin, but the Bible notices the behavioral patterns of things and says, hey, be aware of this. Paul's like, be, be practical. And for leadership, we need to understand the, our own culture so we can properly safeguard things and just, hey, be careful with that. That may look innocent, but it's ne not necessarily. Last thing we close with, teachers of good things. Now, we'll get more into this when we get into verse 4 because I didn't want to spend as much time because this, the first uh, uh, couple of verses is more modeling behavior. But, you know, when you... Everything, you may not be teaching specifically. and You're not in a one-on-one -on -one discipleship or a, or a classroom setting teaching. But you're always teaching by how you carry yourself, how you speak, how you display godly attributes, love, kindness, respect, all these things. And so uh, in this respect, um, Paul is saying all of your characters constantly teaching the younger women. The way you, hey, let's stop and pray about that. That's not a class. That's a natural response to someone who's walked with the Lord for years and say, hey, I don't really have the answer to that. Can we stop and pray? And people say, well, I thought you would just kind of give it your best guess. Well, I could, but let's pray first and then think through it. You know, those kind of things. So he's saying this, by just the way you walk, the way you live out your Christian life, you are teaching both older men and older women. And so young guys, that, you know, or young women that aren't used to staying, let's stop and pray about it, they will learn that, hey, that's, that's the right response. Let's give that a day to think it through. Let's, let's look for a verse or two that would support that. This is, you see, so you're teaching without teaching a class. You're teaching with your walk with the Lord. Amen? This is what he's getting at. So uh, we'll come to a stop there because we're going to have... Uh, a little time of prayer with our men that are here tonight, and we're going to uh, catch up for just a bit on the accountability workshop we had a couple weeks ago. So let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you again for this time, for your mercy, for your grace. Lord, thank you for the instruction book you've given us in your word. We pray that you would help us to follow it, obey it, believe it, love it. Lord, your spirit would help us to uh, keep these things in mind, but live them out, Lord, that we'd have right thinking as well as right living. Lord, I pray your blessing on those that uh, would fall into the category of older men and older women in this church. And Lord, whatever that definition is, uh, Lord, just use those that have maturity in years. And, and Lord, we would just continue to, all of us, grow that we would have the right influence and example uh, to those that are either new in the faith or younger in years, and so we just ask for your help in these areas. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.